The In-Depth Podcast with Richard Harding. Welcome along to the latest In-Depth Podcast. I'm Richard Harding and I'm very pleased to welcome the President of the Committee for Environment and Infrastructure, Barry Breo. Welcome along to Ireland. Hi Richard, hello. For those who don't know, what were you doing before you got into politics? Well, interestingly, I stood in 2000 and didn't get elected because I don't know if you remember, but they had, when you were voting, you could either vote, you could use a cross or a tick. So if you put both on a ballot paper, then obviously it's a sport paper. So I stood for election in 2000. Um, there was a recount against the, the the late Mike Burbridge, actually. So Mike got in, I didn't. So not getting in on that occasion, um, I I was lucky enough to be elected onto three states committee, so I was a non-states member. So whilst I wasn't a non-states member, I was doing what I'd always done, which was either a wiring, structured cable, a large uh, mechanical electrical repairs, that type of thing. So so were you uh, sort of an independent business? or uh, what, Yeah. Yeah, I was self-employed for most of the 90s until I stood. So um, in the early 90s, I I, I bought, I acquired some um, agencies to do things like Philips um, and other small appliance agencies that meant that um, I could do small appliance repairs. And if you bought something that was under warranty, I could repair it, that type of thing. So for a time, I had my own little shop with the house, house behind. Um, then, as you know... I really like the idea of that recycling and repairing and reusing things. But as ever, as production moved elsewhere, generally to Malaysia and China, things then weren't repairable anymore. That You just couldn't get the spares for things. So I then had to adapt and move on to things that could be repaired. Um, so I, I moved into, I suppose, industrial-type repairs, so in, in catering and things, as well as still keeping my hand in doing some wiring and electrical bits and pieces essentially yeah so that's been pioneered in the states and i think it's uh, happening in britain now you can actually bring bring things to be repaired and uh, rather than throw them away yeah well generally there wasn't anything you couldn't repair actually as a kid when i first left school i worked for valpies which is you know yes, um, st. well st martin's yeah. so people may remember part of that was selling paraffin actually if you, yeah. if you think back um yeah, so that was great because you'd get these things in, you'd look at them, you you had to work out what was wrong with them. You had lots of spares behind you, so you'd fix them. You know, it was great that you could have um, most appliances those days. If you owned something, you probably owned it for five, six, eight, ten years, as opposed to picking something up, it doesn't work, and then, you know, straight to landfill or recycling. And you get the impression that... that gadgets are designed to expire as well so they can they have to be rebought. yeah that's right but i think i think society now is moving hopefully i think generally people appreciate that if you spend if you're lucky enough to be able to pay something just a little bit more then you get what you pay for and it lasts mm. a bit longer the idea that all small appliances or even larger appliances actually are just something that, that that are essentially disposable is something i think the community are pulling back from now well sort of going from that to, to a related subject because of plastic bags and uh, yeah. recycling and that kind of thing you, you received a petition uh, to ban plastic bags uh, what's your thought on that well e and i the committee and i i support a ban on plastic bags so i suppose it's a question of, of the government just being a little bit out of sync with the community the community want to move at a certain pace and we we have to move at the pace we can move and sometimes that involves legislation which can slow things down and whether we get to the stage where we really will need legislation with regard to banning um, carrier bags or whether the community are going to get there before us but I think it's again it's down to us as individuals if you don't want to use a carrier bag then don't ask for one don't accept one I know you can spend the 10p on whatever it is on getting a plastic bag but just avoid doing that um, there are other communities around the world have banned plastic bags. Um, I've actually 
Um, I was reading a piece on Kenya because Kenya have, have banned plastic bags, but that's not to say that there aren't plastic bags in Kenya. So even if you do have legislation, then it doesn't mean necessarily that a community adopts it, and it's then what penalties there are. Um, but we could do this through legislation. That wouldn't be too much of a problem, but hopefully the community would get there ahead of us. And they wanted to go a step further and actually ban bags for life as well. What, what do you think for that? Yeah, well, bags. if only a bag for life was a bag for life, I think most people's experience of... of um, when they purchase a carrier bag is that it becomes a bin liner um, or that it's just used you know in a disposable way and it's it's just moving away from that um, in a conversation online um, with someone I was um, remembered that um, your mother may have been the same Richard they had net bags didn't they mm. these tiny little bags which became the size of a skip the moment they opened them so um, that and wicker and of course um, wicker baskets but I think we've just it's that overlearned behavior where we just ask for a carrier bag or I can think of one shop I go into to get two or three litres of milk. It's in a carrier bag whether you want one or not. Mm. So it's saying to people, actually, no, I don't want a carrier bag if you don't mind. It's laziness yeah. as well, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And of yeah. course, it is. Yeah. And of course, it's a byproduct of another process. So if you don't, if you're not buying the byproducts, then the other process doesn't happen, too. Mm. Mm. Now, uh, another thing that's been in the, the news um, is uh, the herbicides that have been found in St. Saviour's Reservoir. Could you just uh, update us on that situation? And, and do you know whether the, the reservoirs come back on stream? Well, actually, I, I don't know, because it's not that that's news that's broken over the past four, 48 hours. Mm. I understand it. it's rumoured that it could be runoff from from the airport. Um, um, but that's you know we have statutory officials or people who are if you like one removed from the political process who adjudicate and judge and implement um, any actions that need to be taken so that would be with them not not there's no direct political involvement with that at the moment because there was the uh, the trouble earlier a couple of years ago with the PFOS the uh, chemicals used for firefighting at the airport do you think there's a, a basic problem with chemicals running off the airport plateau well actually not not as much as there used to be, because um, um, the P- because of PFAS, they have uh, um, retention tanks there now, so they have drainage. If anything spilt on the airport, then it's in tanks. It's held. Um, but no, the PFOS was that when the fire tender overturned, that presented mm-hmm. an enormous problem. And PFOS is in the environment for a very, very long time. So mm-hmm. people were right at that time to be concerned. And of course, many millions of pounds was was spent in trying to. Um, to contain PFOS in bonds, um, I think that's B-U-N-D, mm. <laughs> that's a, a Guernsey Owen use yeah. problem there, um, to, to ensure that the it was, um, you know, kept, um, so, so that it wasn't leaching out, which was a problem at the time. Mm. Now, your committee uh, for environment and infrastructure, it's got a huge remit. Um, how challenging is it to, to give fair weight to everything you, you cover? I, I think it's a challenge. I suppose the... I think most peop- most members of the public assume that this, there's um, the states are overburdened with staff. That in every state's department, there's just people there to do every last thing for you. For you, it it, it just doesn't work like that. The reality is, if we talk about people, um, politicians obviously have input on policy. For the people drafting the policy letters, drafting the policy day to day, we're not. We don't have a great deal of those people. We don't have them in huge numbers. Um, Add to that the draw of Brexit, because a lot of the very talented people have been been dragged away out of necessity to deal with the Brexit issues. So generally, you know, we're on. We will deliver an energy policy. We will deliver hydrocarbons. We will deliver um, the periodic review of the transport strategy. We can do all of that, um, and it is a challenge. Um, but I suppose what E and I do 
is the more visible part of, of the political process, if you like, because we have a budget of about £12 million. Um, if you compare that to, to health and compare that even to home um, or education, it's a relatively small sum of money, yet the things we do are the most visible thing that people like and usually dislike for quite simple and very complex reasons. So sometimes the challenge in E&I delivering is getting it past the initial resistance because once it's in place, whatever we're doing, then people, um, you know, may resist initially, then actually quite like it eventually. Yes. Yeah, so whereas, whereas many people might not have a, a view on closed end funds, everybody's got a view on traffic, haven't they? Well, exactly right. <laughs> That's a really good. You know, people. My my sister committees can spend um, hundreds of thousands of pounds and millions of pounds. Um, related to, if you like, discrete items within their mandate. If we spend £30,000 or £2,000 on the stainless steel gate, it makes the front page. Whether it should do is probably, th- that's, an- that's another issue altogether. But the reality is it does, and it means sometimes that you can lose, as you all know, um, I can lose hours um, giving radio interviews, giving clarif- statements of clarification, and because something online has become the size of a cow, um, uh, generally, it, it, if we can give the Val de Terre um, crossing, it's not a pedestrian crossing. It's not in the middle of the road. Um, there are there are more people there by footfall. There's a new development. La Valette is going to become a destination for people as it, it has been for years, but even more so. So it's right that you protect people who want to cross the road. Um, but if you look at the trying to get that simple message across has been quite difficult because of online, it just takes off. Um so, you know, I'm sat in an E&I meeting and you get eight missed calls from the media and you think, what what, what event could have possibly mm. happened? And the event is that it's an informal crossing, you know, in, in the Esplanade. And that's just, I suppose, the the nature of what we do, the, the more visible thing that gets the public interest, I suppose. Well, you personally come under a lot of public criticism for these policies, um, probably more, more than any other deputy. Uh, how does this affect you and your family? Well... As far as I'm concerned, it's um, it's strange. It's like um, it's an out of body experience for me. There is this persona of Deputy Barry Bray, which people seem to know even better than me, which people want to throw brick bats at, that people want to criticise. Uh, people at times can be quite hurtful in what they say, but actually, it's they don't know me. Uh, they they don't actually know Barry Bray. So if it's this political persona, that's okay. Um, I think for for my family, um, it, it's much more difficult because I've got children who are out with children who want to talk about these things. Um, and some things that are said, I think, on, on forums, um, need there needs to be, you know, it's a small community, Richard, there just needs to be genuine moderation on these sites. I felt sorry for a, a person who appeared in a, in a photo shot, in a picture of the press with me recently, really positive event. Once it got online, it was actually quite a difficult read. And I felt sorry for that person by association who had the misfortune to be photographed with me. And it needn't be like that. And I suppose the only concern I have is that we want people to stand and if people think do I stand uh, for Barry's job do I stand for E&I is it really worth the hassle do I really want to live that life mm. and it actually in this, it doesn't really need to be like that um, and I suppose it's it's the nature of the mandate that I have that a lot of what we do uh, if we take speed limits before you ask me about speed limits mm. um more people have requested a 25-mile-hour limit in that road than we can possibly give. So the idea that the island is a 25-mile-an-hour zone is wrong. There are about 60 areas now. But that whole pushback on speed limits um, was really interesting because the community believed that the whole island was going to be 25 miles an hour. So 
getting a message out and conveying exactly what you want to do seems to be very, very difficult at times because of the the pushback from the online community that then informs the printed media and ultimately the the all media, in fact. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, I think, so you mentioned the speed limits, though. The, the, there is now a uh, confusion. I certainly... I sometimes find when I'm driving around the island, I'm not sure how how fast I'm I'm allowed to go. Whether the signage is kept paced or was yeah, it, yeah. I think the signage the signage has kept pace because that was part, you know we, we had to we had to put some a few more signposts in. We might have seen the rondelles in the road, um, and I think the the signing is quite explicit. I, th- I think the the reality is. Um, that when we get out of our cars at the end of the day and you press your average speed thing, then it would tell you you've driven between 14 and 16 miles an hour. That's what it would tell you probably. Mm. Um, so it's just to curb the excesses in the centres where you'll, you, you will meet pedestrians, you will meet children, um, higher footfall, just to make it safer for the pedestrian. And I think I, I'm a, I drive an electric car. We're a two-car family. Um, but I'm aware that, um, you know, I'm a motorist too, if I can say that. But sometimes... Um, I think the idea that E and I are anti-car and want to get the motorists out of their car is not accurate. We're, what we're saying is, if, why not try walking if you want to? Why not try cycling if you want to? Why not take the bus if you want to? If you want to drive, then just drive at the right speed. You know, that, that's, that's a very, very simple message. But sometimes it can be difficult to convey it. Now, one of the great successes of recent times have been the buses. Uh, bus user numbers have been climbing steadily. Uh, how do you think you can develop that further well we're delighted if you think about this in cities they have bus lanes don't they so public transport has essentially its own road network and we don't have that here in the 1970s guernsey would have been full with you know red and green buses trundling around the island Um, fewer people drove if we go from the 1970s to the early 1990s we've gone from about 20,000 vehicles to 60,000 or more then we did lose the bus user, didn't we, because of issues of investment in the bus service. But the moment we've, the moment we put in a solid contract, and we recognised that to get a bus service working, you you did need the money to do it. You needed a new fleet. You needed the Wi-Fi. People had to feel if they were travelling, in you know, in, if you like, if you're getting out of your own personal space, it has to be a nicer space or a, a space as nice to get into. So within investing in the bus service, then the numbers have picked up. Um, so I think I think it is. The bus service never ceases to amaze me because people have moved back to the bus service um, when you know they have had this option sat in their drive of a vehicle for them to use. How soon do you think we're going to see electric or hybrid buses on the on the roads? Um, well, we've we've done the bus fla- uh, bus um, replacement is in three phases. So we've done phase one and two, which leaves us with about another ten vehicles to acquire. So we've still got the older NIM buses. Um, that in circulation so what we'd like to do ideally is go full electric or hybrid but that's more expensive than getting even the ULEBs the ultra low emission buses so we're meeting with our Jersey and Isle of Man counterparts um, in December and what we're hoping is to potentially have um, small island communities having the purchasing power for for Guernsey to go and demand that anyone builds a bus and it has to be electric, it has to be a certain width, has to be a certain length, is isn't realistic. Um, I, I know that people do, you know, 
Guernsey people travel off Ireland, they travel to Italy, they travel all over the world, and they mm. tell me they've seen narrow, small mm. electric buses that would work for Guernsey. And they, even gas-powered buses and yeah. things like that. Yeah, but, but they're generally, they're generally mini-buses. Mm. So, so bearing in mind we do the schools, don't we, as well? You know, we need to do the school bus service. So we have to get those 30 seats or more, um, and that's what we're aiming to do. But I, ideally, it would be great if we could come up with a minimum of a hybrid um, you know, to, to add to the fleet, that would be great. Did, can you see that coming, or is it at the moment? Potentially, different? potentially, because I think the because um, the technology's moved on at, at a pace. Um, nobody expected, you know, um, nobody expected that. I, I often think about this on the eve of the last election. There were about twenty-eight electric vehicles. We now have three hundred and sixty-four. It's creeping up to four hundred. Certainly, four hundred hybrids. And now about 40 or 50 um, electric motor scooters. So technology is moving at a pace where people are now getting comfortable with it. Um, so I'm sure that's happening too in the commercial sector. Now, talking of electric, um, it's still very expensive um, vehicle for vehicle to, to buy electric cars, electric vehicles. Uh, can you see those prices coming down to make, make them more attraction? And is, is there a way that the states can incentivize people to, to buy electric cars? I, I think actually it's. It's not as, as expensive as people imagine it is. Um, I bought an electric vehicle for under £9,000 and I traded my car in, which meant it was less than that. So there are vehicles on Ireland that are pre-registered in the UK, um, so that they're not new. Um, but the battery life, if you, you know, I think it's, well, I won't name the agency, but you lease the battery. So to give you peace of mind, you're leasing the battery. So whereas, you know, you may spend um, 40 £46 renting a battery that's the cost of of the ev um the original integrated transport strategy did have subsidies in for evs it was felt that if you needed to to move a community away from from petrol and diesel then you, you needed to, to front load have a mechanism in place to get people into electric vehicles but i think that change is happening now almost in a policy void people are moving to electric and hybrids because they are becoming more affordable and again, the tech is advanced to the extent that they're reliable because the range anxiety for people, you know, I, it's funny if I drive my wife's car and it says you've got 30 miles left on it, the red light comes on and you <laughs> think, well, you know, will I get to town? Yeah. Whereas with an EV, you know, it's funny. I run it on four or five miles sometimes mm -hmm. thinking, well, I know that I've got, you know, I know I've definitely got four miles left so I can, you know, nip out in it. Yeah. You might get a bit less if you're going up the Val de Terres. Well, with the good thing, you, well, that's a, you can yeah. start. You can be at the top of the Val de Terres, and it would say 20 miles. You yeah. get to the bottom, and you've got 22. Yes, Cause, if, you cause go, when, if you go down. Yeah, yeah. if you go. But that's, <laughs> that is because interestingly, when I've picked my car up from the airport, I always know every trip from the airport home, mm. I gain two miles. So <laughs> it is mostly downhill. Yeah, it's the gift that keeps giving. Yeah, yeah. So um, can you see the issue of paid parking return to the stakes? Because that was certainly one of the central benchmarks of the the transport strategy, the integrated transport strategy. Yeah. Well, we have pay parking if you park at the airport as i've just mentioned then you're you're paid to park mm. there are other places on the island where you're paid to park and people will pay some people pay a fortune to secure long-term parking to peterport the states have on more than one occasion agreed paid parking and thrown out the mechanism to the hourly rate so the integrated transport strategy had paid parking in it the states accepted the need for paid parking then the legislation was rejected and we lost paid parking um, the Pat Mellor committee for people who remember the old traffic committee they had paid parking and the states couldn't agree an hourly rate so the states have accepted as a, that there is a need for paid parking but then always balk at the bit that gets people charging mm. I suppose it gets people paying rather but if we're serious about climate change and looking at Venice looking at Australia and other places then you think we need to be serious now about 
climate change, then ultimately you're going to need some incentives and disincentives. And I can foresee a situation when at some point um, the next state's assembly may well come back and say, look, we need need the stick, which is paid parking, and the carrot is an even better bus service than you've got now. Mm. Now, uh, electricity also in the news. Um, what to, to what extent do you think competition in the electricity supply will benefit consumers? Are, are there dangers in this to, for Guernsey Electricity because they, they may be facing competition? Well, I, well a population of sixty three thousand. I don't know how many telcos we have on Ireland, but you know, sixty three thousand mm. seems to be about right to, for competition. So I don't think. Um, uh, the state's electricity are under threat. I think that the changes will come in, I think, when we have things which isn't so far away, which is things like the smart grid. So when more people um, are charging their cars, um, when your car is fully charged and you plug it in, um, your car might become part of the grid, you know, that your, your car is seen as battery storage for the entire grid. The, most people, I think... Um, can envisage a situation where they have batteries, they have solar panels on their roof, that they're charging batteries um, in their home, and that they will have, um, they will be spending more time off grid. Um, in coming off grid, the grid still has to be maintained, and that that's that there's a balance in that. So we can't have a situation where um, relatively well-off people can afford to go off grid and have all the benefits, mm. and people who can't afford to go off grid paying for the infrastructure. Mm. So I think that's how the how the market is changing. Mm. But no, I, I think. But I understand um, the gas company uh, may go in, want to yes. go into competition with yeah. actual electricity supply. Well, what yeah. they want to do is is combined heat and power. So you burn gas to create to generate electricity. Mm. Um, I th- that that's the way it's going. It would be another component of it. Would be another element too. But I think that's why the regulation would be necessary. I think there'd be healthy competition. But I don't think anyone is really at threat in all this because I think markets find their own level ultimately, don't they? Now, a report's shown the island's being uh, losing more of its uh, greenfield sites um, to development. Uh, this is obviously cheaper to build on, greenfield sites easier to build on. So how can the states uh, incentivize b- building on brownfield sli- sites, which will cost more to clear up, maybe if there's chemicals or whatever? Yeah, but potentially, just to be clear, for, for environment, our, our ownership in policy terms is the strategic land use plan, the, the SLOP as it's horribly known, the SLUP. So the bit about planning, because I think there's often confusion with environment. You know, people say, um, once again, you know, um, environment is stopping people doing this or whatever. But the DPA is now responsible for planning. Um, We did have a proposal recently for a a levy. If people developed on the greenfield side, it would cost them more. I couldn't support that because I thought that a a developer would say, actually, we're going to develop a greenfield site. And look, we've paid to develop. So why, why, why shouldn't we? I favour um, brownfield site development, the majority of which is probably in St Peterport, incidentally, um, because St Peterport is, is, I live in St Peterport South, um, it's densely populated, and where I live in the Fuller, there's there's lots of new development there. Um, I think um, we have to, I suppose the short answer is that developers too need to remember that they're part of the community. So a developer should be thinking, do I really want to, does this community lose a greenfield site as attractive it might be for development or do I need to look to brownfield? And I think we sometimes developers need to ask themselves that too. But they're also in it for a profit. So if they think, oh, well, we can build this cheaper on a greenfield site, why should we bother with a, with a brownfield site? Shouldn't something be done by the states to? Yeah, well, in, in policy terms, it's whether, you know, it's whether the, the policy is working now and when, when we look to review the IDP, whether we feel that, um, you know, uh, 
members have said before me that just to say, look, absolutely categorically no building on greenfield sites until all the brownfield sites are used. It's not quite as straightforward as that. I can think of one development that has encroached on the greenfield, but actually the, the net gain has been, it's been a really intelligent use of a brownfield, um, a really good use of a brownfield site, but it meant a slight loss of a greenfield to make it happen. Now, uh, the cruise liner industry, um, a double-edged sword, perhaps, it creates a, a significant amount of pollution, but also brings economic benefits. So what, how do you view the, the cruise industry? Yeah, it's an odd one, isn't it? Because they, um, they're not the cleanest way to get around the planet, as we well know. Um, I was interested, I read a piece um, some weeks ago, um, there are cruise liners now being built that burn um, LNG, liquid natural gas, and they're moving away from heavy fuel oil. So if new cruise liners are burning natural gas, then that's lower carbon, less carbon than they're burning now. So that that should be a good thing. Um, there are clear benefits to St. Peterport. I think the, the footfall is welcome, and I think they do spend more than people imagine they spend, because you can see businesses around St. Peterport have adapted to them, haven't they? We've seen... Um, uh, companies invest in cafes off of the main street so obviously there's something to be gained in footfall i think the balance needs to be in in what you lose um culturally in the loosest sense you know if you if if you can't if people are staying out of st peterport because it's inundated with three or four or five thousand tourists that's something that we need to think about um but i think the balance is probably about right at the moment i think any future growth is something that might can i think um, might concern me about this whether um, you know St Peterport is the sort of hub cultural hub we want it busy but we don't want it monopol- mon- monopolized by any one business or industry I mean other communities have this problem don't they mm. I mean Venice has been flooded recently yes but if yeah. you look at the protests when cruise liners you know inundate th- those types of areas it's difficult and so so would you not be in favor of a cruise berth for example well a cruise berth is interesting because we're told that the attraction to guernsey is people like getting on the tenders because they travel all around the world and they like the idea of getting on the tender if you have a cruise berth then it has to fit in you know there's a commercial following the raquette there's a commercial port investigations board what are we going to do with the harbor add to that into the mix what are we going to do with hydrocarbons and we know that we're petrol diesel consumption heavy fuel oil is going down but it, you know that would take 10 or 15 years to achieve that so it's if you're doing a birth what else could that birth give you um, but i think it's the cost of the birth is probably prohibitive um yeah so what, what do you think are the main challenges facing guernsey over the the next decade you know from an environmental point of view well i think how how does guernsey truly deliver on on, on climate change and and how does guernsey act um other communities can plant literally billions of trees. We're not in the position to do that. I did like a suggestion the state's members, the state's member proposed recently was that Alderney was used as a carbon offset. A serious suggestion, let's cover Alderney and trees. Wouldn't that be great? Um, Leo's Yard is going to be developed. How could we maximise the potential, the environmental potential within that? But the challenges are enormous, actually. Um, heavy fuel oil consumption, hydro consum- hydrocarbon consumption is going down. Um, that's the market was sort that out because people will move, you know, because te- people like good design, don't they? And design influences decisions, so people will move ultimately over to EVs. Um, but Guernsey needs to play its bit. Um, so um, when Guernsey, for example, in a recent debate with regard to air travel, we resolved to keep subsidising an airline, so we have aircraft in the sky. They're both half payloads, both burning aerofuel. Was that the best? 
Aerofuel is that a thing that exists, <laughs> Richard? Whatever it is, mm. um, Avgas or whatever it is. Um, so, was that the most intelligent thing we're doing in the light of climate change? So, if if the principal um, consideration in all policy is climate change, then that's huge, and that and that's I think each committee needs to look at its mandate in real detail to see what they can deliver with regard to climate change. And finally, have you made a final decision of whether you're standing next year? Um, not as they say, never say never. At the point you're interviewing now, I think it's unlikely. Um, I, I was, um, I've been a states member for, including stuff as uh, stuff uh, committee work that I did for four years in the states for sixteen. So that's twenty years. And doing E and I um, is a is a you know it's a tough job at times. Um, Deputy Domal didn't do four years obviously deputy burford then didn't do four years um deputy fluke didn't do four years deputy delar so it's one of these it's poison one chalice maybe yeah. uh, maybe but i think yeah. if you think about it you know it's actually we deliver a lot of benefit and good to the community um so um sometimes you, you're going against the flow a bit but i think anyone who who has this job in the future ultimately i think will be on the right side of history but it's just living through it sometimes can be a bit difficult Deputy Barry Breo, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Thanks. You've been listening to the In Depth Podcast with Richard Harding.